0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first ever episode of Juris Nuisance. Um, my name is Dan and I'll be your host <laughs> for every other episode here. Um, so I just wanted to have like a, an introductory episode where I just introduce myself and um, perhaps um, just give you a taste of what will come. Um, So, I studied law at the University of Pretoria. I did my LLB um, from 2013 until 2016. And to be honest, like, I didn't think I would be a lawyer. I just thought that law was so boring and I didn't understand it. And I was just like, I was just basically just scraping through my degree. And... um, I just wasn't interested in it. Um, and the only reason I studied law, to be honest with you, is because my teachers were like, yeah, well, you know, we think you could make a great lawyer, so you should apply. Um, and just like me applying to a university of Pretoria was just a coincidence because I, kn- I knew someone else who went there. So I was like, yeah, you know, it's... Um, it's like... It's all that I knew basically. So I just, I did that. And then um, at the end of my fourth year, I then decided that I would do my master's in um, corporate law. And in that master's year, that's when I actually like started getting interested in law um, because, you know, uh, Undergraduate education is very, like, especially undergraduate law school, um, it's very cram, write your test and go. And the only reason I did my master's also is because I did not secure articles in time. So I didn't have a job going into the next year. So I just decided, hey, I really enjoyed um, company law in third year. Why don't I just do a master's in company law? And I wasn't, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, um, it wasn't anything like in me. I don't like have a passion for corporate law in any kind of way. I just thought like the company just as a, as an, just like as a juristic, um, person is an interesting like institution to study. So I was like, Hey, let me just do company law. Um, So then I enrolled for a master's in corporate law, which I don't regret. (laughs) Um, But I I haven't finished the degree yet for various reasons that are not worth delving into at the moment. But um, it's in that year that I became interested in law and I And it finally clicked, like things started making sense to me, right? So, and I think it's one of two things, it's that um, postgraduate study is rigorous. Well, at least like at my university was rigorous in the sense that I had to read the same amount of material for one class that I had to like study for a test in undergrad and i mean you only had what two tests in a, in a in a semester so it was you had to process a lot of information and you had to know what was going on because that's how the classes were it was like a seminar type of engagement and you you had to be able to engage um, on the the same level as the lecturer and the same level as your classmates who in my case, I mean, there were only three of us who had just come from undergrad, my friend Patton and someone else. And everyone else was like a middle-aged lawyer who's been working for 10 or so years. So it was demanding in that sense. And but it was also very engaging and you, you could actually like learn, like learn, sorry, learn like legal method. And that really changed things for me. And the following year, I, which was 2018, I then went to clerk at the Constitutional Court. I was a uh, law clerk for Justice Matlanga um, for a year, and that, I mean, that was like the best thing that's ever happened to me. I worked with some of the smartest lawyers in this country, and I got to see some of the smartest lawyers, some of the best advocates are you. And um, I also worked for an incredible, incredible judge. And that then just cemented my love and my interest in the law, but also specifically my interest in constitutional law. And yeah, now I am doing my articles, which is like the worst thing that, could ever happen to any lawyer um yeah articles are like the ghetto like for real for real but i'm doing articles at a corporate law firm and i'm doing my second rotation now in banking and finance law um which is as interesting as it sounds <laughs> um but yeah so i i then so i just keep in touch with Everything that's happening, uh, I keep up to date with everything that's happening in in public law, in constitutional law, in legal theory, because those are the things that interest me intellectually. Um, And for a while, I've been trying to write something. Like, I have a few ideas that I want to write about, but I just never get the chance to, like, test them out. And that is proving to be a little bit difficult because it's like... Um, I'm so busy, like I get home at like nine, 10, I'm tired. I don't have time to read some more and to start writing. So I just thought, you know, in this lockdown period where I am still working, but the demands are so much lower and so much more different. It gives me like a bit of leeway um, to actually do the stuff that I want to do. So the purpose of this podcast is to allow me to test like a few ideas and to get feedback from people um, so that I can know like what works and what doesn't work. And hopefully by the end of it, I'll have produced something (laughs) uh, worth putting out there. Because my thing is that like, there's a disconnect between academia and the legal profession, the practice in the legal profession, in the sense that no one takes academia seriously enough. Um, but it's also like sometimes academia can be out of step because they're not involved in the practical like um, side of things. But where you get someone who can bridge that divide or who is both interested in academic ideas and developing those and... At the same time, being you know um, involved in practice, that for me is what the future of the legal profession looks like. So, um, yeah, but also like that's what I think a serious lawyer is. All the lawyers I consider serious have done that, and. I want to be a serious lawyer as well, but also like this has to work out for me. Like I, I don't have any other talent. I don't, I don't have any other talent. I am not very really good at anything else. Um, Not even like, I'm not great at law. I just like know things like a little bit. Like I know, I know a lot about, I know a bit about a lot and not a lot about one thing. So that's also not great, but like, it has to work out for me. Like I have to be a good lawyer. I don't have a choice. Um, so yeah, that's the purpose of this podcast. And um so today I want to talk about um the regulations that were published, um the national disaster regulation or the state of disaster regulations that were published. But it's not like it's not something that you're going to get a lot from me. I'm not, I won't be doing like current affairs or like in the news type of things. Um, I just want this to be like a an icebreaker um, before we really get into the weird and wonderful stuff that I actually do want to talk about. And I hope you guys will indulge me. So after the president um, declared a state of disaster, um, the Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs published the Disaster Management um, Regulations under the Disaster Disaster Management Act. And these are the pre-lockdown regulations. And in those regulations, the minister purported to make the spreading of fake news, which is false information about COVID-19 an offense, right? And I think she also prescribed um, penalty for that offense, right? Now, a few days ago, I tweeted that I did not think that she had the authority to do so. Um, and that she could never have the authority to do so because the creation of an of an offense is uh, is the sole like preserve of parliament um, and Parliament can never delegate that power to anyone else. um then an advocate friend of mine um, inboxed me to say that he did not agree with me, and he told me what his argument was, and the argument goes that first. Um, the act empowers the minister to issue regulations, which we know. Secondly, that the act empowers to the minister to issue regulations, regulating the dissemination of information during um, a state of disaster. Right, Now, I'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, but the third one is that the act makes it um, an offence. For anyone to contravene the regulations, right? So, the, any contravention of the regulations is an offence under the Act. And then, that the Act empowers the Minister to prescribe penalty for any contravention um, of the regulations. And the conclusion is that the Minister did not create a new offence, right? But merely regulated the dissemination of information um, in those regulations. Now, I want to address this argument by going back to first principles, right? What we know um, about legislative power and how it functions and whatnot, because I think that's where the answer lies. And the first, first principle (laughs) is um, the principle of delegation. So we have three arms of state of government, which I presume everyone understands. And we have a separation of powers, right? Um, we have parliament, we have the courts, we have the executive. They all have their own powers, and um, they're not allowed to trample on each other's powers. Um, and the reason for that is that you don't concentrate power in one arm of state so that, it, None of the arms of state Becomes More powerful than the other Or not more powerful but um, Yeah 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 but uh, Disproportionately powerful let me just Say because um, I mean parliament and And um, the executive Are a lot more powerful than the courts Or at least should be Um, But that doesn't mean that You know Mm -hmm they get to, they can concentrate uh, their power there, right? So the job of parliament is to make laws, right? And so there are two levels of legislation. One, primary legislation, which is um, acts of parliament. And two, subordinate legislation, which are regulations and the like. So... What usually happens is that Parliament will enact a law and then in the provisions of that act, um, then delegate some of its authority to make subordinate legislation to, say, a minister or a regulatory body or um on a, or an agency or someone under the control of the executive authority right and the reason for that is that sometimes legislation deals with um, future events occurring and deals with uh, future outcomes and stuff like that and obviously no one can predict the future so you make provision for rules to be made as and when things happen so that you don't um, you don't have to go back to Parliament every time. So, for example, um, telecommunications telecommu- is a very uh, dynamic sector. Things are always happening. So you always need to constantly be reacting to change. That's why Parliament uh, has delegated authority to ICASA to make regulations. Um, the Competition Commission is another example, which has um, uh, a lot of regulatory power, Um also to make regulations, um, think of the Minister of Labour who has to issue regulations, uh, then the Minister of Minerals and Energy, and the list goes on and on and on. So the idea is that you live in a modern, um, large administrative state, and you need rules and you need rules that are, uh, and you need to put rules in place that are, you know, responsive to changes um, in those in those areas of law, so you don't because it's so difficult to pass legislation and it takes so long, you don't want to hamper that process um, of change. So you simply just give the power to the executive authority um, to make sub subordinate legislation. And the Constitutional Court has held that that is permissible, right? But that there are certain powers that cannot be delegated. So the power to enact a law, the power to amend a law, the power to repeal a law. Those three things are the sole preserve of Parliament, right? So Parliament cannot at any point say, um, Minister so and so. Or oh, this um, regulatory agency shall, you know, be entitled to amend or repeal um, a statute or enact a statute because simply they simply don't have those powers, right? The executive does not have that power. That power is the sole power. That's what's called plenary lawmaking power, right? So the act of enacting, the act of repeating, the act of amending, that's Parliament's power. Um, so now we understand what delegation is. So Parliament can delegate some of its power to an executive authority. right? So there's another aspect to this argument which I thought was interesting, and that's um, the criminal law, right? Because the um, the creation of an offence is a matter of the criminal law. right? So in criminal law, there are two categories of crimes. There's the mala in se crimes and the mala in prohibitor. Mala in se crimes are crimes or conduct that is evil in and of itself. So murder, um, rape, assault, theft, those are mala in se. They are conduct that is um, unlawful and wrongful um in itself, so you don't you don't even need a law prohibiting it, right? So mala in prohibitor crimes are those crimes that are that are crimes by virtue of statute. So because at whatever says you cannot do a certain thing, it is illegal for that reason, right? Um so that's most crimes. So your traffic offenses, your corruption, your bribery, all of them are mala-in-prohibitor crimes. And obviously, the spreading of fake news about um, COVID-19 is a mala-in-prohibitor crime, or if it were a crime, (laughs) if it were a crime, it would be um, mala-in-prohibitor would fall into this category, the second category of crimes. Now, in order to create an offence, You need a law. And by a law, I mean an act of parliament that prohibits conduct and prescribes punishment for that conduct, right? So that speaks to those three principles um, that we know. Um, There's fancy Latin for it, but I, I can't remember it, but that it's basically like there's no crime without a law. There's no crime without a punishment, then there's no a, there's no punishment without a law, right? And which means that you need a statute that says it's wrong to do this, and if you do this, this is your punishment, right? So it's clear that the creation of, a, of an offence is a legislative function, right? If you want to create a new crime, aside from all the common law, common law crimes that exist, you need an act of parliament to do so, right? So, when the minister—and it's a plenary lawmaking power because the power to make to enact legislation is as parliament's power. So, when the minister said um, the spreading of fake news about COVID nineteen as an offence, how could she do that? Uh, because the act itself does not criminalize the dissemination the, the dissemination of false information by anyone else but the government right so what the act says in twenty seven two um, is that the minister may, after consultation with the relevant um, the relevant cabinet member, make regulations regulating the dissemination of information during uh, a national disaster. so, My advocate friend reads that as saying that the minister is entitled to criminalize um, the dissemination of false information about uh, the disaster, whatever disaster it is, but in this case, COVID-19, I don't agree. I think that um, the only way the minister could have made um, uh, spreading of fake news about COVID-19 an offense is if the enabling statute, which is the Disaster Management Act, had criminalized the dissemination of any false information, which it does not, right? But also secondly, that only parliament is able or should be able to create new offenses because um, the creation of a new offense is the imposition of a restriction on the, uh the right to freedom and security of the person right because once conduct that you was otherwise legal becomes illegal that puts you and me at the risk of um arrest and imprisonment right and that can only be done by law of general application right and that for me means that parliament should be the only um, body that can do that, Um, but also because it is the most democratic of the three arms of state. Um, You have somewhat broad representations. You will have people who will argue over the bill and its merits and, you know, hammer out the, the finer details in order to arrive at a piece of legislation that is acceptable to a majority, at least, of the legislature. The legislators there. And so I I don't think that it's permissible for the minister to to create an offense. Um I think they were a little bit overzealous um with that part of the regulations. And I mean I may be completely wrong, like I may completely be off base, but that was my first instinct when I read it. I was like there's no way the minister can create a new crime. Like this is a new crime, right? And the reason I say it's a new crime is because lying, like lying is not a crime. Like lying is not illegal. You can lie about anything you want, but there are specific offenses related to lying or that involve lying. Right? So perjury is one example where if you lie under oath or you lie to a court, that's an offense. And, Um, You can get up to, like, 10 years, I think, in prison. Um, But, like, lying, it makes you a terrible person morally and ethically. But, like, legally, you're fine, right? But the creation of a specific offense that involves lying um, seems to me to be uh, a legislative function that... Involves the exercise of plenary lawmaking power, right? Because it's it's tailored and it's specific, right? And that it 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 like it limits like it criminalizes conduct that was previously not illegal. Like I've said, mala in prohibita. So that should that cannot be done in any way other than by an act of parliament. And it can't be done by regulation because ministers don't have the right to create new crimes. All right. Let me know what you think. Um, I'm very interested in this. Um, and I'd like to hear what people think. Cheers.